Well, today uh, we come to a passage that is obviously not a light passage. <laughs> uh, it's not an easy section of the Bible to study. Um, what's here is, is heavy. In fact, one commentator labeled this section as the darkest passage in the former prophets. Um, here, here in this narrative, we have, on the one hand, a very vivid and, and condemning account of Saul's disobedience to God. Uh, by the time we get to the end of chapter 15, as you just heard, uh, Saul's final rejection as king by God is complete. Um, and, and as in so much of, of the Saul narrative, these verses really leave us longing for a better king. So there's, so there's darkness that's reflected in here. Uh, in, in that because of Saul's persistent rejection of the Lord's word, Saul is ultimately rejected as king. There's, there's certainly heaviness represented in that. Uh, but this passage is a difficult one, uh, not just because Saul is rejected as king. Uh, the most difficult elements in this passage don't necessarily just revolve around Saul's rejection. In fact, we're not that surprised that the rejection has come given all that we've read so far about Saul in the narrative. The hard parts in this, uh, in this passage come from el other elements of the narrative that are present here. In fact, uh, who's counting? But there are about four elements that make chapter 14, verse 47, through the end of chapter 15, a very hard chapter, maybe one of the most difficult sections in the whole of the Bible, four of them, and here they are, here they are. First of all, in verses 47 to 52 of chapter 14, we have what we can call a, a sanitary summary, because in those verses, Saul's reign as king is summarized, and at first pass, it seems really clean and sparkly. And, and so knowing what we know about Saul, and then reading, of course, what comes next in chapter 15, it's really hard to figure that summary out. Why in the world do we have what sounds like a very pro-Saul summary of his kingship, given that he, that he was basically an abject failure in the sight of God as king? So, so as far as this passage goes, that's a tricky one to sort out. But that's easy compared to what comes in the rest of chapter 15 because next we have to deal with the severe and, and brutal battle objective that the Lord gives to Saul where the Lord commands Saul to totally annihilate all living things associated with the Amalekites. So, so people and animals and so on. What, what do we make of that severe battle objective? And then as we keep going, things don't get any easier because we're, we're given what seems to be contradictory statements about the nature of God himself. So in verse 11 uh, of chapter 15, the, the Lord says, I regret that I made Saul king. So we've got to already kind of deal with that. But then down in verse 29, we're told that the Lord does not lie or, and our translation says, or change his mind. It's the same regret word that we had above. So, so the Lord regrets, verse 15, we get down to verse 29, and what are we told? The Lord does not regret. Okay. And then to top things off, by the time we get to the end of the chapter, we have Saul asking for forgiveness of his sin, and the Lord doesn't forgive Saul, instead he rejects Saul. So, so how do we deal with that? And we know the Lord forgives all who come to him in faith, but no forgiveness for Saul. So, so this passage, it's just not easy. It's just not easy. And, and we get ourselves into positions like this with our commitment to expository preaching. Or maybe we should say, I get myself into positions like this with my commitment to expository preaching. Because we, we commit to going through sections of the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, week by week. And as we do that, we hit hard stuff. The, the Bible is not an easy, it's not an easy book. It gets dark at times. Which is why Martin Lloyd-Jones, the, the great preacher from the, the 20th century, he called, he called the Bible the most realistic book in the world because it's not all peace, peace. Sometimes it's just death and darkness. And, and when we hit these difficult spots... Uh, we, we, we basically have three options for our study. Option one, uh, we could skip past chapter 15 and go right to chapter 16. 
The first half of chapter 16 is a really nice uh, a really nice chapter to study. There we meet David the shepherd boy and things are very nice. Uh, we'd have to maybe skip the second half because that gets hard again. But at least the first half we could, have, we could have a nice moment. So that's option one. We could just skip this, go on to chapter 16. Option two, we could just run really fast through the hard stuff that's here in chapter 15. In fact, just studying it this week made me think about, about uh, being back in St. Louis a couple weeks ago, and while I was back there, I, I sat in class all day, and then I had this, this uh, about a half hour of, of free time before I was meeting with some guys, and, and I decided I just need to go for a walk, because I'd been sitting all week long, and, and, and I was kind of by this, this um, long mall-ish type thing. I found like I was always lost in St. Louis, but, but I was by this mall thing, and I thought, well, I bet I could do two laps around the outside of the mall. Uh, before before I have to meet these guys, and and so I walked around this mall type complex. But when I got to the back, there were some things going on that made it very evident I should not have walked back there. And so what I did at that point is put my head down, not look around, and just walk really fast and, and, and get through it. But but there's a sense in which I was that came to me as I was thinking about this passage. We could just take that approach to this passage. We could go through it, keep our head down, not look around too much, and just get through it. We could do that. That's option two. Go fast. Or option three, we could slow down and try to make sense of this which is not an easy option because there's immediacy of, 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 of offense to our sensibilities and all kinds of things. But, but option three is we could slow down and make sense of this. And, and guess what? We're taking option three. And we're taking option three not because we have some morbid attraction uh, to, to dwelling in places that are dark and heavy, but we're taking option three in part because of that prayer of Jesus from John 17 that we started with that we started with here when we were going to, going, to, going to study, where Jesus prays to the Father in John 17. And what does He say? He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So, so when Jesus prays for His people, He prays that through the whole of the Scriptures, we as His people would be brought along in faithfulness and holiness. Because to really know the Lord is to really take in all of His truth, which means, like Paul says to the pastors in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, this means we must proclaim the whole counsel of God. We can't, we can't do away with certain pieces that are hard. It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. So according to Jesus, according to the Apostle Paul, we need what's here. It might not be easy, but we need it. So then, at the moment, the plan is this. We're going to take the first two hard parts of this section today. So we're going to take the end of chapter 14 there where we have that uh, kind of sanitary summary of Saul's kingship. And then we're going to take the first nine, chap- uh, nine verses of chapter 15 where we have that severe battle that we need to deal with. That's this week. And then next week, or maybe next week and the next week, we'll see how things go. But in the next week or two, we're going to finish out those other two hard parts with regard to the Lord's nature and regretting, but He never regrets. And then with regard to forgiveness that isn't granted to Saul. We'll we'll take those next time. Uh, so, So that's the plan, just so you know where we're going. Um, and so I know where we're going. We all need to know where we're going in, in something like this. Um, but but we're, going to, we're going to start then this week with, with the end of chapter 14, and we'll start with this sanitary summary. So that's, that's what we're going to do as we, as we get started. So I think, I think just here I'm going to stop and pray again because we need God's help, and then we're going to study this. If you haven't turned there in your Bible, you can turn there and follow along. It'll be helpful. Uh, 1 Samuel 14, starting in verse 47. Father, uh, we are thankful for your word. We know we need your word. Through your word, you give us life. We also know we need the help of the Holy Spirit to comprehend your truth and to have it applied to our hearts. And we ask this morning that you would work in our hearts. Uh, Help me in the preaching. Help us in the hearing. Uh, We want to know what you have revealed and we want to understand it well and accurately and ultimately be transformed by it uh, to be more and more like Jesus. So draw us out in faith this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Okay, so we'll jump right in. The introduction to the sermon this week is just, this is a really hard passage. That's the introduction, and here we go. Verse, verse 47 of chapter 14. So look at those verses. It, it does strike us how comprehensively kind to Saul they are, doesn't it? It strikes us that way. Verse 47, it recounts how Saul fought against all his enemies in every direction. And then we have a long list of some major enemies of Israel, and we're told that wherever Saul turned, he caused havoc on these enemies. Verse 48, Saul fought bravely, the text says, which included defeating the Amalekites, which we're going to see him do in, in chapter 15. That's what comes here. And in all that, Saul rescued Israel from those who plundered them. And then in verse 49, we start reading about Saul's family. So that's nice, right? Sons and daughters, a wife and a relative who was commander of his army. And then in verse 52, we read about this ongoing conflict with the Philistines, which was fierce. However, Saul was always quick to recruit these, these strong and valiant men for his army. So, so we read these things, and at first pass, it actually sounds pretty good. This is, a, this is a very clean description of Saul's reign. And we just read this, maybe without reading the rest of Samuel, and we think, well, this was a good king. He did a good job. We think that at least at first. But being familiar with the narrative now as we are, we're starting to learn from the book of Samuel a very major lesson. And that lesson is how things look on the outside is not necessarily true for how they really are on the inside. And while this is a nice summary of Saul's reign, we know it's a bit too sanitary. And actually, the writer of this summary crafts these words in a way that conveys that reality as we look at it a little bit closer. This is an extraordinary example of the genius of Hebrew narrative. Because even, even in the, well, let's think about this first. In the stories themselves, in 1 Samuel, and we're going to see this again with David, we're being told this fairly continually in different ways and then very directly with the words spoken. Humanity, man looks on the outside, what does God do? God looks on the heart. That's something that's going to be constant in, in Samuel, right? And, and, and now, even in the way this story is crafted, we're showing that principle stands true. It's amazing genius with just the, the narrative here. So, so take a closer look at this summary. It's shiny on the outside, but is it really so good, what we're being told here? First of all, when you think about this, we're, we're actually initially bothered that there's a summary of Saul's kingship at all right here in the storyline. Throughout the rest of the Bible, the summary of a king's rule would be written after they died. Saul's eulogy here is, is a lot like the description given to other kings as history goes on. We see this in First and Second Kings and so on. Um, but those kings' eulogies regularly end with, and he slept with his fathers, which is that Hebrew euphemism for, for, for dying. The summaries of a king's reign, uh, whether good or bad, they're always given at the end of their life. But here, Saul's still growing strong, uh, going strong, at least in a certain way he is. And he's going to keep going, albeit with some, some trouble here. But he's not done doing stuff yet. And, and here's his eulogy. So that puts a cloud over, over the kind comments here. It's like waking up in the morning, opening the paper, and reading your own obituary. What in the world's going on with this? And then, and then we have a few other things that give us pause. For example, we're told in verse 48 that Saul fought bravely, which if we've read the narrative, we snicker at immediately. But, but then in verse 52, we're told that whenever Saul noticed valiant men, that's the same Hebrew word there, bravery, valiant bravery. Whenever Saul noticed brave men, he gathered them to himself. And we remember that the brave fighting that was done under Saul's royal banner, it was never really him. 
From the time he selected as king, remember he's found hiding among the weapons back in chapter 10, and then he was sitting under the pomegranate tree during battle in chapter 14. We'll see that kind of behavior again in the Goliath incident that's coming up. Uh, Saul's battle victories do not correspond to his own bravery, but to the valiant men who fight for him. The only only bravery attributable to Saul is the fact that he's associated with truly brave fighting men. So, So his valiant description isn't quite as shiny as it might at first see. He's brave, but really we know it's because he brings in brave men. He's not brave. And then then we'll just notice one more thing, and this is an important one. Um, In in verse 47, the narrator tells us that wherever Saul turned, wherever he turned, he caused havoc. Now, that translates a statement in Hebrew that could literally be rendered, wherever he turned, he condemned them as guilty. That's, That's the Hebrew of the text which actually corresponds with obedience to God's commands in places like Deuteronomy 25, uh, where part of Israel's job in the land of promise was to to defeat the people around them because of their habitual sin. So so Saul's victory and and, and condemning these wicked nations with his victories, that, that actually corresponds to a righteous fighting king. However, the Hebrews actually ambiguous here and purposefully so. So it could be translated, Saul condemned them as guilty, referring to the the righteous victory over these guilty enemies in the land. Or it could be rendered, wherever Saul turned, he made himself guilty. There's ambiguity with the the Hebrew text there. In in other words, if that's the translation, he didn't really fulfill the directives of the Lord, um, and actually he failed to be faithful. So, So there's some purposeful grammar gymnastics going on here on the part of the author that make us read this once and think, oh, that's nice, but then we look a little closer and we go, wait a second, wait a second. This might not be as shiny as we at first thought. Where is the guilt really in all of this? And then there are other elements too. We won't list them all, but, but, but we see what the narrator is doing here. He's giving us a summary of Saul's kingship, which might appear pro-Saul on the outside. It's clean. Look at this king. But, but then we get a little deeper, and when we start connecting the dots, the craft of this summary statement is actually telling a darker story. Outside, things can be reported well, but on the inside, when we really dig in, Saul is not the king he's, he's, he's put out to be. He's not the guy. And it's important to see those elements just to make sense of the, of the kind of heartbeat of the narrative that pulsates all the way through First uh, and Second Samuel. Not only is Saul not the guy, but we're told time and time again, he may look like the guy in a lot of ways. Remember, he's tall, a head, a head above all the others. He's, he's a handsome and kingly looking fellow, even credited with some battle victories, but he's not the guy. The one we need will be the one who has a heart after the Lord's own heart. We're looking on the inside, as chapter 13 already said, and as we're going to see again in chapter 16. The Lord looks on the heart, not outward appearances, but which helps us recenter our own understanding of how God works in so many aspects of life. And we'll talk about this more when we get to David, but, but externals, as, as nice and shining and charming and, and sanitized as they can be, externals are not what ultimately matter to the Lord. Saul so, so will discover that the hard way by the end of chapter 15. We actually see him building a monument to himself by verse 12. He clearly is far from the Lord. To know the Lord, to be, to be turned toward God in a way that brings honor to him, to do these things, ultimately is an inside job. It's, it's a heart concern. Proverbs is replete with this. Jesus talks about it in his ministry. Externally, going through the motions apart from a genuine heart yielded to the living God, it means nothing. It, it's a shiny eulogy on the outside here. But, but it's for a king with, with, with a dark heart as we look a little closer. 
And so we just need to see how that point is made here with a kind of uh, narratival craft that is just amazing as we, as we look at this a little closer. But, but with that, this actually ought to be a great comfort for us because, because no doubt we have many aspects of life that come with a kind of external baggage and hurt. The outside of life can be extremely messy at times. Things leave us far removed from what would otherwise be a clean summary of life. But the encouragement in this is that the Lord doesn't look on those externals in any kind of ultimate sense. To quote Isaiah, for example, Isaiah says, uh, quote, speaking for the Lord, this is the one to whom I will look, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. We, we take great comfort in the fact that shiny outsides are not a prerequisite for participation in the kingdom of God. And we see that theme running through, running through the narrative here, and it's re-emphasized even in this strange sanitized summary that we have at the end. But again, we take comfort in that. While the outside may not be clean, while there may be sorrows and scars and all of those kinds of things, those are never final statements about who we are under God and through the work of Jesus Christ. That is always an inside concern, always a posture of heart concern, always a matter of having our affections turned toward the living God before anything else on the outside might look a certain way somebody might tell us it ought to look. And so it's just a reorientation here that comes uh, from the text in this, in this sanitary summary. It's hard to sort through a little bit, but as we, as we press into it, we can see what the narrator is trying to emphasize. So, that's that part. The sanitary summary, that brings us to the end of chapter 14. Next now, which actually this segues obviously into the next section, next we do need to talk about this severe battle objective in verses 1 to 9 of chapter 15. Um, so, so what let's do is, is let's get a, a grasp on exactly what's happening here. So we'll run through these verses, explain what's going on, and then we'll come back and, and work to understand some things. Um, so first of all, starting in verses 1 to 3, we have this, this directive coming to Saul from God. Um, as a parent, uh, you may have found yourself saying from time to time, uh, to your kids, I need you to listen to the sound of my voice. You ever said something like that in, in parenting? It's one of those parenting phrases that sounds really silly when you try to explain it. Uh, but listen to the sound of my voice. But, but we, know, we know what we mean. We mean pay really, really, really close attention. Please, 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 please. That's what we mean when we say that. And, and we have to say that because oftentimes in the life of a child, whether we have them or remember being them or are them, as, as kids listening can be hard. And what we also know is that listening is not just a kid's struggle. We all struggle to listen. And we know from the storyline of Samuel, uh, so far, and in a very serious way, Saul does not do well when it comes to paying attention to the word of the Lord. Saul doesn't really listen. Chapter 13 was all about that. And, and, and so as chapter 15 opens here, Samuel comes to Saul again, and Samuel reminds Saul, first of all, that he's the prophet the Lord sent to anoint Saul as king. So Samuel is saying, in, in effect, don't forget, Saul, I'm the one who speaks on behalf of God himself. Gives him that reminder. And then Samuel makes this statement, listen to the words of the Lord. Only our English translations smooth it out for us. In Hebrew, Samuel is using the parenting line that we know so well. He says, listen to the sound of the words of the Lord. He's redundant. He's redundant. But because Samuel knows, Saul has trouble paying close attention to the Lord's words. Right? Listen to the sounds of the words of the Lord. And then to underpin the seriousness of things, Samuel says, this is what the Lord of armies says. That statement, this is what the Lord of Armies says, that's going to be used going forward in the biblical narrative among the prophets 76 more times 
76 times to offset uh, the, the, the great seriousness of the Lord's word coming to people in the situation that they're in. And in this case, uh, that's what's happening here. The word of the Lord, it's a heavy word. It is coming to Saul and he needs to pay attention. Samuel tells Saul that he's to completely destroy the Amalekites because of what they've done to Israel during Israel's escape from Egypt. So all of the Amalekites are to be completely destroyed from the people to the animals. They're to be, they're to be wiped out. That's the directive which we're going to come back to. But then we move from that directive in verses 1 to 3 to Saul's preparation then in verses 4 to 6. So in those verses, uh, Saul gathers his troops. It's a whole bunch of troops. And then in verse 5, uh, he puts his army in position for the attack. In verse 6, Saul goes and warns the Kenites to leave the Amalekite area uh, so they don't get swept up in the attack. Historically, the Israelites and Kenites are friends. Um, there's, there's some long stories there. Moses' father-in-law was a Kenite. Um, so, so Saul gets those, those folks out of there. And then in verses 7 to 9, the attack is executed. And Saul defeats the Amalekites. Now, he captures their king, Agog. He captures him alive, destroys the rest of the people. But he and his troops also keep the best of the animals as plunder. Um, so so in, in a sense, Saul's very victorious here. But we know right away that he didn't listen to the voice of the word of the Lord. He kept the king alive, probably as a battle trophy, maybe a future bargaining chip with nations around them or something like that. And he and his soldiers kept the best of the animals as well. Now, all of that becomes very critical for what takes place next for Saul. Uh, and we're going to deal with that next week, Lord willing. Uh, but what we can just see here is that Saul ultimately wins this battle, uh, so to speak. Now, what, what we need to do now is try to understand the severe nature of what Saul is called to do here. So the Lord, the Lord said to Saul, with regards to the Amalekites, he says basically everything that has the breath of life must die. And that's what he's saying. And, and, and what do we do with that? It, it seems very, very brutal. Uh, it can cause even confusion with, with regard to what we know about God. So, for example, how, do, how does a directive like this correspond with something like Psalm 145 where we read that the, the Lord is good to everyone his compassion rests on all he has made. How does what's going on here correspond to a, to a verse like that? Um, how, how do we deal with this? Well, uh, there, there are different ways uh, this battle and others like it in the Bible have been explained. Uh, for example, one commentator says the Israelites who practiced such a war had much to learn about the character of God. So that scholar takes the view that the Israelites got it wrong. It was, it was their idea, not the Lord's directive to fight this way. The problem with that view is that the text is very, 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 very explicit, actually on one main thing all the way through the passage. Listen to the sound of the voice of the word of the Lord. Maybe voice, the voice is repeated eight times in this passage. So, so, so this is the Lord's directive that ultimately becomes the point of the passage. It's Saul's disobeyed it. Uh, so we can't just say this is an Israelite problem and they didn't really know what God wanted. No, God has made it clear. So we can't read it that way. Others read this, and their response is to simply dismiss the chapter if, as, as if it's not really in the Scriptures at all. You know, this is one of those take the scissors and, and cut out the parts of the Bible we don't like, or maybe use this as a grounds for chucking the whole Bible just in general. Uh, so, some will do that because, because sensibilities are offended. Uh, others uh, say that this is just a normal wartime practice in the ancient Near East. So it's not so much that God told the Israelites to do this in a specific way, but in the ancient Near East, this is just how wars were fought. The problem with that 
is, is there's a technical term for the total destruction that's represented here. Uh, it's, it's the word harem in Hebrew. It's a technical term for this kind of devotion to destruction. And it's also repeated eight times in this chapter. So, so what's going on here is unique and it's emphasized. So, so you just can't dismiss this battle as, you know, this is the way folks used to do war. That doesn't work. So how do we understand what's going on? What, what do we do with this? The Lord's directive is, is the total destruction of all that lives. Saul doesn't obey all the way, but that's, again, that's a problem for next week. The Lord's directive is clear. What do we do with this? Well, uh, we, we need to think in two categories uh, to make sense of, of what's happening here. The first is uh, historical. The second is theological. So, so first of all, let's think in, in terms of an immediate historical category. Uh, which, which is demanded from, from the text itself. Because in verse 2, uh, the Lord speaks through Samuel and He tells Saul that I, I being the Lord, I witnessed what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. So, so this directive to go destroy the Amalekites is sourced in a you know, historical event about 300 years ago. And, and that event is recorded in Exodus 17 where the Amalekites fought against Israel. That was the episode, if you remember, where, where Moses needs help uh, continuing to lift his arms during the battle, if you, if you remember that story. And after that attack, the Lord says this to Moses. This is from Exodus 17. He says, write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. And then we read that Moses built an altar and named it, the Lord is my banner. He said, indeed, my hand is lifted up toward the Lord's throne. The Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. And so from there, really, as, as biblical history unfolds, the Amalekites become a kind of archetype of opposition to God's saving purposes. In fact, in fact, before the Israelites enter the land of promise, through Moses, the Lord reminds the people of his posture toward the Amalekites. In Deuteronomy 25, Moses is speaking to the people and he says, remember what the Amalekites did to you on the journey after you left Egypt. They met you along the way and attacked all your stra <clears throat> stragglers from behind when you were tired and weary. They did not fear God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies all around in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. Do not forget. That's Deuteronomy 25. So, so there is the, the promised judgment from God on the people of Amalek, ultimately because the Amalekites were, were killing the people God was rescuing, and they didn't fear the Lord. They were against God and His life-giving purposes. And, then this, and this conflict between Israel and the Amalekites, it continues to take place down through Israel's own history. Sometimes it's more obvious than others, but it actually reaches a climax in the book of Esther. Remember Esther, the story of Esther? Maybe it's been a while since you read it, but, but if you remember in that story, Haman, Haman who is the one in the book of Esther who is totally bent on destroying the Jews, Haman is described as an Agagite. In other words, he's a descendant of, of Agag the Amalekite here. So, so, so there is, down through the biblical storyline, there's this generational wickedness represented in these people as they're murderously set on doing away with the people God is rescuing, and they don't fear the Lord. Even in our own chapter, Samuel addresses the present king Agag, and what does he say to him? You're somebody who makes mothers childless. Wickedness through and through. 
Um, so when we read the Old Testament, what we find the, the, in the Amalekites is a, is a kind of picture of, of absolute contrariness to God and His purposes for life with His people. In this sense, they're, they're the quintessential against the Lord group in the Old Testament, kind of along with the Philistines and, and, and people like that. Uh, in fact, in fact, we see that it happen multiple times, and we know that, that God responds to these kinds of things in a certain way. As they're against the Lord, we know what, what God says to that. They, they're all going to die. All people, animals, they're harem in Hebrew. They're devoted to destruction. That's the, that's the immediate historical element behind all this. But that's not the only element that we need to consider because it still seems brutal in terms of what's happening here, children being included and so on. And, th and that's because... We can't just think about this merely historically. We also need to understand this from, from the higher plane of God's revelation of who He is and what it means to either follow Him or reject Him. We need to think about this not just historically, but we need to think about this theologically. In that sense, what's going on here is a smaller picture of a much bigger reality. In fact, what's going on here is not unlike the flood narrative back in Genesis 6. Interestingly, if time permitted, which it does not, but there are a number of parallels to the flood story in this story. Um, but, but a main parallel with the flood narrative is that here we have a group that, that is absolutely set against God, and the result is the total destruction of, 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 of the people. Death is handed down from God. We think about that in the, in, the, in the narrative there with Noah, where everything that has the breath of life ceases to live. That's, that's very much what's going on here. And, and, so, and so in this, just like with the flood, from, from historical events, we're actually being given a picture to help us understand... Um, just exactly how devastating it is to be set against the living God. In, in, in one sense, as we come to a passage like this, the size of our struggle with a passage like this, now we're not talking about the size of our sorrow over a passage like this. What's reflected here is extraordinary, extraordinarily sorrowful and sad because of the condition and in all the things represented. But the size of our struggle with a passage like this will be set in direct proportion with the size of our own view of the badness of sin. The size of how much we struggle with a passage like this is set in direct proportion with the size of our view of the badness of sin. And this is where we begin to get theological. We, we, we know from the beginning of the biblical narrative that sin leads to death. We know that from Adam and Eve in the garden, the first, this, the first sin. But sin isn't a matter of impersonal moral choices. Sin is always and ultimately a violation of God himself. Sin is rebellion against the creator and the life that he gives. And, and as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians, it's because of, of the sin of Adam in the garden, we as humanity are a fallen race in our entirety. In Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, in Adam all what? In Adam all die. We are lost in what theologians call original sin. And, and, and while we continue to find ourselves set against God, even in our own personal daily sins, we do all exist left to ourselves in a place of natural rebellion against God. That's why David can say things like, in sin my mother conceived me, and all of those kinds of statements we read in the Bible. Paul uses language like, by nature we're children of wrath in Ephesians 2 verse 3. And then we read things in Genesis, like, actually we read it twice in Genesis, both before and after the flood. All the thoughts of our hearts are only evil continually. Now that doesn't mean everything we think is turned toward harm, but it means every piece of our being and reasoning left to ourselves is set against God's good way. 
That's, that's the bad news about all humanity. In, in the eternal scales of divine justice, we're guilty of this cosmic treason. We, we, we've, we've not feared the Lord, and instead we've turned against Him. In that sense, we've, we've all uh, amalicated, if we can make that a verb. We've all amalicated as humanity. This is our, this is our condition. And a story such as this one, a story uh, such as the flood narrative as well, they remind us that that to be against God is not end in in a matter of moral indifference, but to be against God is to be personally, and then as humanity on a corporate level, all of us, young to old, it's to be an enemy of God. Which is not a safe place to be. Psalm 1 says it very plainly, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Prophet Nahum, he says, who can stand before the Lord's indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Hebrew says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Paul, he's addressing the intelligentsia of his day in Acts chapter 17. He puts it plainly, the Lord has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Jesus, he makes it just as plain in his own ministry. Don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather what? Fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. So, so this passage, it, it doesn't leave us with, with, with just an Amalekite problem. This passage actually leaves us with a vivid image to reckon with regarding the totality and comprehensive nature of God's judgment. How, how, how big is my view? How big is our view of sin's badness and what it deserves? The, the, the reality of God's judgment must never escape us. Now, now with, with that in mind, recognizing the totality of God's judgment as just and deserved, we also know that that is not the end of the matter, praise God for that. Right? Because we still have attention all through 1 Samuel and then, and then all through the Old Testament for that matter. We're not left waiting for God's judgment without hope. We're left waiting for a better king after God's own heart which in all of this is driving us directly to Jesus and what He accomplishes, because actually it's only in Jesus that the full character and purposes of God can be understood comprehensively and accurately. Because in Jesus we have a statement, for God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him, what? Shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus comes and He takes the penalty of our rebellion upon Himself. Isaiah speaks to this in Isaiah 61 where where Jesus takes the words upon His own lips that He came to declare the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus comes and He takes the, if you like, the Amalekite curse upon Himself. He takes the judgment of the ultimate flood upon Himself and He pays the price we owe for sin. That is the full expression of Psalm 145 that we quoted earlier. The Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all that He's made. He sent His Son to bear the penalty we deserve, and the call of salvation is there. It goes out for all who will believe in Jesus and not reject God, but embrace His mercy. Jesus came to effect our rescue, and there is compassion for all. Least to the greatest sinners, there is compassion for all in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah speaks of Jesus coming, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. He came, He proclaimed salvation through His cross. But then just to follow Isaiah's line, In Isaiah 61, we also read that the day of the Lord's vengeance will also be a day proclaimed. Jesus is going to come again, and Jesus will return, gathering to Himself those who trust in Him to in a state of eternal joy. But as Jesus returns, He will also do so as the better Saul to war finally and fully against the the enemies of God and ultimately condemn those who persist in rebellion against the living God. Jesus returns exercising God's final day of salvation 
and God's final day of vengeance. Because while the love of God extends across the world and down through the corridors of time to all who will come to Him in faith and find forgiveness, the wrath of God will one day be revealed finally and fully against all ungodliness, those who are not in Christ. And then while that's a heavy truth, the Amalekite situation points us forward to the very real, the very gritty, if we can put it that way, the very final and complete Ultimate righteous justice of God. To be against God, to be against God is to die, full stop. To be in Christ is to live eternally. And that is the dichotomy of the whole Bible. There are the rescued and there are the rebels. And as we work through this, we realize that this is a word we have to listen to with ears to hear because unless we take seriously the word of divine judgment, we'll never be able to accurately respond to the word of God's salvation. What would we need to be saved from? We have to come to the real recognition of the fact that in ourselves, in myself, I do not deserve life. I deserve death because of sin. If, if we're thinking fully and theologically accurately with what the Bible tells us about us, what astounds us is not that God judges humanity. As we read the Bible, that is, that is something that stands out plainly and clearly. We deserve this. What astounds us is not that God judges humanity. What astounds us is that He has mercy on us. That's the, that's the amazing thing. That's, that's the amazing grace that we sing about. That, that, that I once was blind and now I'm see. And what, what, is the, what is the hymn writer saying? That, that He would save a wretch like me. That's the astounding news. Because the hymn writer knows what ought to happen is judgment. But in God, there's this extraordinary grace extended to all who believe. And so a passage like this just reminds us the judgment of God is nothing to be trifled with. It's nothing to take lightly. It's nothing to disregard. And it is, it is nothing to be removed from our minds even as we come to trust in Jesus for our salvation. Because without a recognition of where we've been or where we would be, there is no comprehension of the greatness of the love and sacrifice extended to us and offered for us. And so it's a, it's a heavy word what's here, but it's a critical word. It's a word we need. Jesus is the king we need. He's the procurer of rescue, and he is the defeater of all final opposition to God in life. That is who Jesus is. He's the one who will one day come, as we will say, to judge the living and the dead. And so in a passage like this, again, we're brought to our knees in a sense with big theological truth. And we're also brought to our knees in a posture of humble repentance, recognizing that to turn to the Lord is to find life. And in that, there is life abundantly, but to be separated from that life is only sorrow and certain and eternal death. And it's a heavy passage to study, but it's a truth we need. It's a truth we need to be reminded of. It's right at the center of what it means to believe the good news about Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word. We pray that it would, that it would uh, affect our hearts in a way that ultimately turns us towards you. You are the holy God. You are the one who's righteous and true. You are the one who is above all, and you are the God who is compassionate and merciful. You're abounding in kindness. And we pray, Father, that uh, we would find that kindness in turning to the Lord Jesus. Again and again, we would return to Christ and find in Him the relief we need, and not just for ourselves, O Lord, but that others would turn to Christ and find relief as well. May this text not only compel our own repentance, but it may, may it also compel our gospel witness in a world that needs to hear about the saving uh, love of the Lord Jesus. So we ask for help to this end. In His name, amen.